so excited uh, to get to introduce uh, our good friend, Dr. Gary Burge, uh, with us to open up the word this morning. I know, I know. How come, how come y'all don't do that when I get up? <laughs> no, super excited. Gary is uh, one of the members of our teaching team, and uh, we absolutely uh, are blessed every time uh, that he's able to be here to open up God's word for us. So, Gary, thanks. Thanks, Soren. Thank you very much. Good to be with you guys. By the way, you have an awesome pastor over here named Torin. Do you know this? Woo! Come on, a little louder, a little louder. All right, that was a little louder than the other one, by the way, Torin. Just, just saying, just saying. No, Torin's great. You have a wonderful church. You have a wonderful staff. It's always a delight to be back with you guys. It really is. <clears throat> you are working through a really provocative series uh, this fall under Torin's guidance. Um, and it is the question of how is it that we actually hear God's voice? How is it that we uh, live lives in concert with what God desires for us inside of this world? Not an easy question. You guys know that, right? It is a tough question. It really is. So therefore, we have to ask ourselves things like this. Is it an audible voice? Is it a voice that, uh, I mean, <clears throat> there are many times when I wish I was going out to my car in the parking lot and I would just hear, God, you know, what am I supposed to do next? Uh, yeah, is it an audible voice? Is it restricted to the Bible? Is it in a text? Is it an interior voice that we hear in times of contemplation and reflection? Well, how do we understand this? So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to take another angle on this it is a time-tested angle that has been known for a long time, but you haven't stepped into it yet. Okay, now in order for me to get there, I need to come in kind of sideways. And what I want you to do is think about this. <clears throat> there is a difference between knowing a thing and doing a thing. Hang on, stay with me here. And I think all of us know this naturally, instinctively, but we don't really think about it very much. It's, it's something that we don't reflect on. So let me give you some examples, and then you're going to get it eventually, okay? Imagine for a moment that you are a lover of art. You have all kinds of art books inside of your house. You just love art. You're all, you've got great stuff on the walls. But then when I meet you, I ask, my, that's awesome that you love art. What's your favorite art museum? I really don't do art museums. Oh, okay. So you're a practitioner. Do you do you have an art? Do you do art? Do you know what medium do you use? I don't do art really. Okay. So you're a hobbyist. I wouldn't say that to you. So you just collect books about art. Okay. I guess that's cool. In other words, there's somebody who is acquiring knowledge about art, and then there are those who are stepping into the practice of art. Do you see the difference right there? This is going to work for you. Watch. So you're a cook. Your favorite TV channel is the Food Network. Yeah, exactly. Maybe if you're really hardcore, you watch the best ever British baking thing. You got to be hardcore for that. Never mind. Anyway, in your kitchen, you have a whole shelf of cookbooks. How many of you have more cookbooks than you really need? Raise your hand. Confess. Yes, indeed. I can see half of you guys have got this. Anyway, so you've got all of these cookbooks out there. And I meet you and I say, well, what is your favorite dish to cook? And you say, eh, I don't cook. <laughs> what are you doing with the cookbooks? I don't cook. I don't cook. DoorDash is my favorite company. <laughs> you get it, you guys? 
There is knowing a thing, and there is doing a thing. So one of my hobbies is I bake bread. I know it sounds crazy, but I just got, it's a COVID thing I started. Anyway, so I bake bread. I thought I was so unique and cool about this, you know, and then I found out online that about 25 million people are doing this as well. So much for that. So anyway, I have got some cookbooks I've looked at they're bread. And on the cover, there's always this really cool young person, you know, with a white thing and the cool hat and holding a big loaf of bread. And I'm like, I want to be like that. You go through the book and you see all of these great pictures about breads. It's really amazing. But there is that moment where you ask yourself, okay, here's the picture of this really nice piece of bread. Will I bake it? Will I take the recipe from the text to my kitchen counter. That's a whole different business. It really is. Imagine this. Here's another example of this whole thing. Imagine you say to me, oh man, I am so committed to justice issues. I really am. I read about this all the time. I watch documentaries, which everybody else would hate. I watch PBS. That was supposed to be funny. Anyway, I watch <laughs> PBS all the time. I read the right magazines. And you've got all of this information coming in about how you feel passionate about the environment or race or you name it. And then I meet you and I say, wow, that's amazing. Have you ever written the government? Have you ever gone in a demonstration? It's one thing to have all this information and collecting these feelings of outrage. It's another thing to walk on the street and say, this must stop. You see what I mean? So there is knowing a thing and there is doing a thing. Taking that one step to the street changes everything about the way you read justice. See the difference? It changes everything about these two. It really does. Last one. Now, imagine for a moment that you were really rich. Imagine that you loved music, and for some crazy reason, you have a German relative that put in his will that you have just inherited a priceless bit of sheet music from Mozart. Whoa. Well, I'd sell it right away, but never mind that. <laughs> and you say to yourself, I love music. I love Mozart. I love all of this stuff. And so therefore, I take this piece of music and I mount it and I put it in a frame and I put it on the wall and I go, see, I love music. I love Mozart. I have pinned him to the wall. But the truth is, Mozart never intended to be pinned to the wall. <laughs> in fact, the music of Mozart is not on that page. In fact, what Mozart always imagined is that that music would move to a cello and fill the room with music. Now Mozart's will has been found. See how that works? You can nail Mozart to the wall or you can pick up your cello. There is knowing a thing and there is doing a thing. Okay, now let's go to the next step because the next thing is interesting is that there is a long history of understanding this and it has to do with the Greeks. So you can see here that I'm going to sort of tweak this next slide because if you look at this, you can see that, oh, wow, this idea of knowing and doing goes all the way back at least 2,500 years. 
For the Greeks, they understood that knowing a thing was the key to transformation. And therefore, the mastery of something means you have to acquire knowledge about it. And that is why the Greeks developed philosophy. They developed educational theory. They were very much committed to what I would call abstraction. That's who the Greeks were. Hebrews, on the other hand, were very pragmatic. A mastery of the thing springs from living a thing, from doing a thing. It is a lived experience. And so therefore, the, for the Hebrews who write our Bible, they say, well, really, if you've mastered something, if you own something, you don't pin it to the wall, you live it out. So that is why when you open the Bible, for instance, you go from Genesis to Revelation, you will find no place where there is a theoretical argument for the existence of God. It doesn't happen. The Bible simply asks, are you living as one of God's people? But if you go over to Plato and Aristotle, you'll have all kinds of discussions about how this is supposed to work. So think about it this way. Is who you are what you know or is who you are how you live? Just take that in for a moment. Digest that for a moment. Is who you are what you know? Or is who you are how you live? So if I wanted to figure out if you were actually a follower of Jesus, okay? I could, I guess, after this service give you a quiz in Bible or theology. I do those all the time where I work. I, I teach at Calvin Seminary. So anyway, I could give you a quiz on theology. And then I would say, ah, you passed the quiz. It was a C plus, but you passed. <laughs> you are going to heaven. Or do I live with you for 24 hours? What would be the right way to find out if you are a follower of Jesus? Do I figure out what's in your head or do I figure out what's in your life? Isn't that interesting? Now, you may say to me, if you're thinking about this, wait a minute, aren't these two connected? Absolutely, they are. Now, if you notice the next slide here, take a look at this. When you ask yourselves, okay, so how does our culture fit into this whole thing? Guess where we belong? Our entire civilization was shaped by the Greeks who brought it to the Latin-speaking, to the Europeans, and right across the Atlantic Ocean to us. To us. So you, as you know, this is Western civilization. This is how we have been designed inside. We privilege education over experience. Trust me, I know about this because I have a PhD. I know somebody else over here who has a PhD. That stands for piled higher and deeper. So I remember when I got this PhD and my dad said to me, so what use is that gonna be? <laughs> it was like, ah, really, is that it? Then I had to explain to him what it was. Anyway, so here's this idea that somehow the acquisition of more knowledge and information the sort of the intake of more information somehow is going to do what I want to do with my life. Now, if you happen to be in the Middle East, they question that entire assumption. If you happen to be in Central Asia, they question the whole assumption. If you go to the East Asia, same thing. You go to Africa, same question. This is a legacy that we have inherited from the Greeks. 
So therefore, if I'm in the Middle East, you might hear somebody say, well, you know what? Why don't you put down your books and do something? You ever heard that before? Of course you have. So we value earned credentials in our culture. They in the Middle East value time-tested experience. I don't care so much how many schools you went to, they'll say. Instead, I want to know the track record of your living. What have you done in your life? See those two? It's working all the way through this. Now, does any of this affect how we live and think as Christians? You bet it does. The Bible is a Hebrew book living inside of a Greek and Roman world. And therefore, it understands this tension between knowing a thing and doing a thing. The Bible worries all of the time that you and I are going to get filled up with information about God without ever knowing him. Take that one in. The Bible worries all of the time that you are going to get filled up with information and never know the God who wrote that information. So therefore, in the Bible, the solution is really simple. Put down the recipe books and bake one loaf of bread. <laughs> Put down the recipe book and live out what you've been told and read. Don't memorize, love thy neighbor as thyself. Instead, just go out and love somebody who's hard to love. There it is knowing the scriptures versus living the scriptures. Because if you do that little thing, suddenly the command to love takes on a completely new meaning. If the scriptures say to you, love your neighbor, and you love your neighbor, and it's hard work, suddenly you'll find yourself going back to the scriptures to ask, how do I do this and what does it mean? You will suddenly have a transformed relationship to your life recipe book called the Bible. So therefore, you'll find yourself living God's word to you, and you'll find yourself thinking about it in new ways. You will suddenly play the music of Mozart, and you will stop pinning him to the wall. That's our challenge. That's for us. Now, one person who is really worried about this inside of the scriptures is James. All right, it is James who is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He actually wrote a letter to us. And in James chapter 1, verse 22, listen to this language. Now, James is coming from a very Hebrew context where experience is more important than knowledge, but there is a connection between the two. But it's lived experience that he is thinking about. He's worried about all this Greek thought. Do not merely listen to the word, James writes in James 1, 22, and so deceive yourselves. Huh. So I could come into church here and listen to Torah for two years and I could be deceiving myself? Whoa. Do what it says. Do you see that language? In other words, what you take in, now take it out and work it. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. 
You see that language? It's really interesting. There is one kind of person who simply collects recipes and memorizes them, pins them to the wall, and does all the rest. And then there are others who become true cooks and musicians and artists. There are Christians who simply turn the Bible into an idol, and there are others who see the Bible as the recipe book for their life. Here, here's another one, James 2, verse 14. Here is James being very worried. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, he says, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing for their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So the setup here must be somebody comes to your front door and is actually impoverished. They're starving. It's freezing outside. They don't have a coat. And you say, I have a great track, so how you can be sure you're going to heaven when you die? And James is saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What kind of a faith is that? Get them indoors. Feed them and clothe them. But someone is going to say, well, look, some folks have faith. Some people have deeds. But James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that God is one? Good. You could pass every theology test. You know what the Trinity is. You've memorized the Heidelberg Confession. That's a West Michigan thing. James says, good for you. Even the demons believe all that, and they shudder. Demons, he's suggesting, are great Bible scholars. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith apart from deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. You get the idea. So therefore, Abraham is a man of faith. He understands a great deal about who God is, but really what has to happen is he has to act on what he knows, and in his activity, in his doing, his knowledge becomes complete. Now, throughout the history of the church, there have always been people who have said, okay, then how is it that I actually find a gateway into knowing then what God wants me to do. And let me just put this little chart up here for you, and you'll see these. There are many lists of these things, but I simply want to give you what are the four classic gateways, and I'm going to underscore the fourth one. You've seen this inside of our study in the fall so far, but there are those who say, I feel as if I understand what God's voice is for me by thinking and by reading. And so therefore, they will go to God's word, or for some of them, they will read books about theology or spiritual practices, and they'll say, wow, this is so meaningful. I feel as if I am in harmony with the voice of God when I do these things. God bless you. That's wonderful. That really is. There are others who say, well, it is really my feeling. I have encounters in worship. I have meditation. I have prayer. And therefore, I have cultivated a contemplative life, and it's in those very quiet, sacred places where I hear God's voice. Just on these first two, 
If you have not cultivated the discipline of diligent study, God's voice won't probably be heard from the scriptures. If you have not disciplined yourself to create places and spaces of silence and contemplation, you're not going to experience God's voice in the second category either. There are others who say, the fourth one, third one is, the others who say, it is in beauty in which I actually experience God the most richly. It's, it's just in beauty. I might be in nature. I might be experiencing when I see great art. It might be when I'm caught up in music. It could be poetry, but beauty is the category. Because God has placed his fingerprints over this entire world, I sense his fingerprints when I'm in those places. The fourth one is activity. And that's what we're talking about today. It is obedience and justice. In other words, I then act on what I have been told, uh, what I have learned. Now, generally, we will gravitate to one of these due to our personality. The mature Christian, however, is going to have a full symphony of these going all the time. And I would suggest to you that if any one of these is left on its own, it can lead to really unfortunate consequences. So imagine, let me just walk through them for a moment. Imagine the person who simply becomes an academic student of God's word, but never really does anything with it. It doesn't really affect their heart or their emotions what, what do I do with that person? Somehow they have to develop number two. Uh, what do I do with that person who has this contemplative life and is really mystical in every respect, but is not guided or grounded by God's word? It's possible to be that person, you know. What about the person who says, you know, I really don't like go to church and I just don't really like to read. Instead, what I'm going to do is go to a national park and I will just turn the Grand Canyon into my sanctuary. Uh, you've heard that one, haven't you? Just take me to a wilderness, and that's all. The thing is, that will give you inspiration, but possibly not God's real voice. We need all of these working together. Imagine if someone has studied the Word of God, has an amazing contemplative life, enjoys the beauty of creation where God speaks, and then it doesn't turn into anything when they walk down the road, when they get into this world, in the street. What if they don't really obey any of it? What if they don't really move into it? What if there's no activity in their life? Of these four in the history of the church, number four has always been neglected. Number four has always been the one that we, we, we really don't do a great deal with. We know a lot of things about our faith, and we act on few of them. If you think about it, you're, you're probably going to say, yeah, I get that. You're probably right. We know our, our knowledge is ahead of our activity. Why? Because we think that knowing is more important than doing. So what do I do at the seminary, at Calvin Seminary, where I said I teach? Um, what do I do with a student who knows the Bible cold but never attends worship or never prays? What do I do with that? Do you think that critter exists? I can tell you it does, like first-hand experience. What do I do with someone who is deeply contemplative and mystical but is not guided by the Bible? 
What do I do with the friend who feels God in nature but never comes to church? These are all problematic because that symphony is not working together. Each person who simply hunkers down in one without the other is handicapped in some way. So the Bible says if you want to live a life in harmony with God's voice, act on his commands. Take Mozart off the walls and go to your cello. Take the recipe book and move the recipe to your kitchen counter. Just try it as an experiment. And once you do that, your relationship to the recipe changes. Now, this is not just a concern of James, because Jesus has this very same concern. He knows full well that the temptation to do less than we know is always around us. Here, look at this in Matthew 7, 24. You know these verses well, but now you can listen to them in a different way. He says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Do you see it there? That is Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, it actually says in Greek, and who does them. So there is the knower and there's the doer. The person who knows and who does is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, streams rose, winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So what Jesus is actually talking about here is someone who has split what they know from what they do. They are no longer living out in obedience what they have actually read, and that has made them a deficient follower. Here's another one that I like. It's a parable of Jesus in Matthew 21. Take a look at this. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 28. He says, well, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard. And the son said, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went out and he worked in the vineyard. And then the father went to the other son and said the very same thing. And that son said, I will, sir. And while I'm at it, I'd like to recite the Heidelberg Confession. But that son did not go. Now, verse 31, here's the kicker. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The one with all of the right words the one mirroring back to the father what he wanted to hear, the one with all of the knowledge, or the son who actually did what his father asked. Well, they said, the first, of course, Jesus said, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So you can see that even Jesus is working this out. He's asking us, it's possible for you to be my follower, but because your obedience is so thin, you don't act on what I tell you. And so what's the point? 
What is the point? Just so that I can cover the whole landscape, I have a couple of my favorites from Paul. Oh, why not? We don't want to neglect Paul. Now, Paul, when he writes the book of Romans, he's trying to give you kind of his summary of all the grand ideas that he teaches in his churches. And at the very beginning of Romans, he gives you what I think is kind of his thesis statement. So at the very beginning, look at what he says in verse 2. God promised this gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So the gospel is all about Jesus. Yes, I get that. Verse 5. Through Christ, we received grace and we received apostleship to call the Gentiles to what, does he say? The obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. So Paul says the whole mission of a church like this, the whole mission of the church in the world, the whole point of the gospel is not simply to cultivate knowledge and from that faith and confidence in what you believe. Instead, he calls it the obedience of faith, activity wed to knowledge, both of those together. Here's my other favorite. This is tattoo worthy. I'm just saying. Galatians 5.14, he says, look, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. What? That's always great. So the whole Old Testament, Paul, what does it all mean? What does it all stand for? There was one rabbi actually in the medieval world said, I can tell you what the whole law means by standing on one foot. <laughs> and this is what he said. It's exactly what Paul says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wait a minute. I thought it was about all 600 or so rules that we had to obey. I thought it was about monotheism. I thought it was about the Trinity. I thought it was about a nice catalog of theological affirmations. I thought that's what it all was about. And Paul says, eh, you boil the whole thing down, and it comes down to this. Love your neighbor as yourself. I wanted complexity. I wanted something where you could give me a test and I could get an A and graduate from Cornerstone. Where's anybody from Cornerstone? Anyway, but instead Paul says, no, it's about something simple as this. It's loving your neighbor. All right, so... There's a formula then. I have a great recipe for sourdough rustic peasant bread. I'm just saying. It says in the book, there's a great photograph in the book. You can smell the bread off the page. I think it should be a scratch and sniff. It says, use real live yeast that you've been cultivating for weeks. Okay, okay. Let the thing rise for eight hours. Use a Dutch oven inside your oven. Set it at 450 degrees. Ooh, hot oven. Nice, nice. I look at the pictures. I look at the inspiration. And then, and then I take the recipe to my counter and it's so annoying because I thought it was going to be easy and I was going to get this going and it would be just finished. So therefore, I lay out my ingredients, I check my yeast, and suddenly I dawns on me, when I try to act, I simply can't do it by myself. So therefore, what I have to do is I've got to go back to my recipe 
I have to review how many grams of water was this? What's the temperature of the water? 95 degrees. And what kind of flour did she say to use? So I read the recipe, got inspired. I went out and acted, and I discovered that the acting was way too hard. I went back to the recipe and said, what was that again? And then I came over to the counter and I said, let's try this again. So therefore, there is a kind of back and forth between recipe and kitchen counter. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. You see, there's reciprocity between these two. And then, and then, there is that moment when you've tried things and read things and done things and thought about things, when you've got the doggone bread inside of the Dutch oven and you put on the gloves after 42 minutes and you bring it out and set it and you open up the Dutch oven and you go, oh my gosh, look at that. I did it. Here, here's your last slide. Ta-da. That ain't easy. And if you just go out and try to bake bread like that, and you don't keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with the recipe and trying it two or three or four times, you're not gonna do it. There is joy that emerges from the possession of a recipe when the recipe turns into bread. There is joy. There is joy when you suddenly discover that the music lit class you learned suddenly turns into that beautiful cello that you possess. The joy emerges. We suddenly feel as if we are living into God's voice when our activity and obedience matches what he says. So imagine if I treated... God's word, God's voice in the same way. Imagine if you heard that voice in the Bible. Imagine if you heard Torin give you a sermon. And imagine if you were feeling prompted by the Holy Spirit to go and do what you have been learning. Imagine for a moment if you just obeyed one little thing and you tried this. The Lord has convicted me to give some money to this place. Imagine for a moment if you acted on that impulse. The Lord has prompting me to talk to that lonely person. Imagine if you said, yes, yes, I know the scriptures talk to me about, about caring for those who are in need and, and, and my neighbor and and I hear God prompting me out of scriptures. Imagine if suddenly that took feet and walked. Imagine if you felt the Lord was prompting you as he does in the scriptures to forgive you. And you said to yourself, on Monday when I'm in that class, I'm going to walk up to that person after class and I'm going to say, I need to ask for reconciliation and I want to forgive, us, forgive each other. Imagine... Imagine if you experienced a spirit-inspired desire to speak up and not be silent when you are in a context of outrageous injustice. Imagine, I'm talking about, I know that injustice is something I want to address, and I know I'm scared to do it. But when you do it, suddenly the command comes alive. When we do these things, recipes become bread. Sheet music 
fills the house with sound. You start building your life on a rock and your knowing and your doing are wed. If we do that, we become bakers and musicians, practitioners, and disciples. Let's pray together. Lord God, we ask that you would give us the courage not simply to hear your word and collect its thoughts. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to act on what we know. to be obedient to what we have studied, to be courageous practitioners of what we know to be true. Give us courage, fortitude, and wisdom. We pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.